0: If your form is sensical, I mean, you can create a nonsensical form where people make mistakes because your your design is just terrible. But like
1: I, I wish Tim were here because right, right. my favorite. Yeah. My favorite one is the credit yes. card one, like a credit card form. <laughs> it should just be standard that you do name. Yes. Put in yeah, your that's name. True.
0: That's true. Put in
1: your card number put in the expiration date, put in your CVV. When you flip those things, guess what goes in that very first form? I put in my card number every time. Welcome to Working Code, and now your hosts, none of whom have ever seen a failing unit test, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim.
2: Okay, here we go. It is show number 95. And on today's show, we're going to do a potluck of unpopular opinions. So it's a potluck unpopular opinions edition. Tim can't be with us this evening. Apparently he's in London getting plastered with some of our patrons. So hope you're having fun, Tim. Uh, Off the top of the show, hopefully my audio quality is much improved over last week. I I listened to it and wow, that was bad. You sound great (laughs) now. Yeah, yeah. So got a new microphone. That was the problem. Unfortunately, it wasn't the cheap fix, the cable. So I figured... Double, double patron thank you this week, top of the show, and and we'll do it at the bottom of the show too, you know, because having those guys help us out, guys and gals, enabled me to go get a new microphone. So
1: thank thank you. you.
2: Yay. So Tim's MIA, it would be his turn to go first. So he just loses his place in line. And uh, Carol, what do you got going on for your triumph or fail?
1: Well, I'm gonna pretend like Tim just gave us a great triumph because you know he's traveling and <laughs> drinking with friends, and that sounds like a win. So that's one win. So I'm gonna well, throw a second triumph win on week. it. Oh man. Okay. Well, you can double your triumphs. It's fine. I'm gonna go with the triumph. So I have just been feeling really overwhelmed, and while that doesn't sound like a triumph, I got handed this situation where I was asked if something was ready for product review yet, and. I immediately, being a redhead and having somewhat of a temper, (laughs) flipped my switch and went, what the hell are you asking me about this? Like, what from our conversations made you think that I would have this information for you? Well, I did not say it that way. That's just what I thought while I sipped my coffee. But I did message my direct boss and I messaged my counterpart and said, hey, what from all of these conversations made this come across as it was my responsibility to deliver this by today when nothing was ever like, Expected. There was no communication that said, hey, we need to have this review and pointed by today. Like none of that happened. And it was just straight up like miscommunication uh, across the board and the expectations weren't laid out. But instead of going with what I wanted to say, which is like, what the hell are you thinking? I said, hey, kind of where did this fall short at? And just so you guys are aware, like to my boss and to my counterpart, I was like, just so you're aware, this is getting in my head. Like, this is frustrating me that I feel like I dropped the ball on something or that now product is behind because they had an expectation that I was going to deliver something today. And it's bothering me that I am putting people behind. Mm-hmm. So before I would have just grabbed it, did it and been like, okay, I don't know where it happened at, but here it is. I'm not going to have to work two hours after and you know, make up for some other project that got behind because I was doing this and communicated the question and got it across, got the solution in, got the process fixed so this doesn't happen going forward, and didn't actually do the review and said we will schedule to do this and that's how it's gonna be going forward. But I just feel like I handled it better than I would have in the past. So I'm calling it a triumph that, you know, it didn't turn into a disaster.
0: Nice. <laughs> Yeah. It sounds like nice, you handled nice a great restraint.
1: Yeah. Cool. I held back. My ears burned a little, but I didn't yell. So <laughs> It's a good thing I'm remote. <laughs> That's me. What about you, Adam?
2: Oh, I am having a wonderful week. And I was trying to think maybe half an hour, 45 minutes ago of like, what am I going to pick for my triumph? And I just was struck by how lucky I am to have so much to choose from. I just had a really good productive week. I guess you might say, or or if you're a baseball fan, you would say that I've put down a lot of base hits this week, right? Just project after project after project that are all like single day projects, which was a really good week. But I think I'm going to go with this. And that is that, for various reasons, and and maybe we could talk about this in today's topic. I have been using Microsoft Edge this week, and uh, like on a Mac, right? I'm not on Windows, and it's bad, but it's not as bad as I expected, right? Like it's.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say why. <laughs> yeah, like just
2: um, for funsies. You uh, enjoy no, it? not just for. So, okay. How do I tell? I'll try this short version here, right? So, I love Chromium right especially the dev tools like, i am in love with yeah, the chrome agreed. dev tools oh yeah i try i tried to avoid the chrome monoculture like i i like the chrome browser there's i've got nothing against it but if everybody only ever uses chrome then that's bad for the web i tried firefox and had some issues with it slow rendering and the dev tools were not as good as chrome dev tools so i've tried a, a variety of other chromium browsers including vivaldi and one that's relatively new called arc and you know, they all have their shortcomings. And I kept, you know, finding little things, death by a thousand paper cuts sort of things. And so now I find myself on edge because I'm still trying to avoid the Chrome monoculture edges, Chromium based. And I hadn't given it a fair shot yet. So I figured I'll give it this week. On Monday, I installed it and set it as my default browser and I haven't turned it off yet. <laughs> but uh, it's been a little frustrating here and there. But it's it's fine. It's got a couple of things that are nice about it even. so.
1: Okay, what's well, a nice thing? Give me one. You said there's a couple. Um, <laughs> give me something.
2: Yeah, yeah. So the, it, I like the way that it does vertical or horizontal tab switching, right? So there's a lot of browsers that give you the opportunity, like a config setting, to use vertical tabs instead of horizontal or, or oh, stick with the That's traditional cool. horizontal. Well, in the tab bar, Edge, I guess by default, I'm sure you can turn it off, has like a button where it allows you to switch like on demand just by clicking a button in the tab bar. And that's, I've been making a little bit of use of that and that's
1: nice. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Okay, that's a cool thing. I'll give See? you that. Yeah.
0: I, I tried to start doing more of my personal stuff in Firefox and my work stuff in Chrome, which I've, I've always used Chrome. And And kind of to your point, like just to keep the multi-browser system alive. And it's really hard there there's so many things that chrome does really well especially the dev tools the yeah. the dev tools in safari are terrible i think it's and it's not like it's not like the functionality is bad in safari the experience is
2: bad mm-hmm. in my opinion in the dev yeah. tools i would say apple is a user experience company and and so yeah. for them to have such a bad they user be experience mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's it's
0: hard i I started going back to Chrome even for a bunch of my personal stuff just cuz it's just more enjoyable. The one thing that yeah. Chrome does that I Firefox doesn't do and it was really sorely missed right off the bat was that in Chrome you can go into the settings and you can set up like special phrases that you can put in the universal search bar. So I'll mm-hmm. do MDN for example if I start a query with MDN, it'll automatically search Mozilla Developer Network. And and I I have a couple of those set up and and Firefox doesn't have those. Apparently you can install an extension, but I'm like very anti-extension. I just, oh yeah, like, Mm -hmm. I want the thing to do the thing that I want. I don't want to have to get something else to do it.
1: Yeah. I I like the whole box package, right? Like it should work out of the box. I shouldn't have to buy the add-ons.
2: Yeah. I guess that'll be good for me. Ben, how about you? What's your time for fail?
0: I'm going to go with fail failure but it's not like a huge failure it's just sort of a it's more of an um, an emotional failure. So as I talked about on a previous episode, Envision recently had a very large reorganization to, to put it very politically correct. A lot of people were let go and as part of that the Envision board wanted to contract. They wanted fewer people on the board so that they could my understanding is move more efficiently without having to get people involved. And I have been on the board for years and uh, didn't really participate. I was mostly just a spectator. And so I was asked to resign from the board. And I didn't think that would bother me so much. But then when I actually signed the, the document that says I'm no longer the, uh, the secretary, I was technically the secretary also, it actually hit me really hard. I was not anticipating that. And it, it left me feeling really gloomy for an entire day. And then on top of that, I had a conversation with my director of engineering. And he was uh, saying that some of the stuff that I do at work has caused some kerfuffles. And I asked him, I'm like, why don't people just come and talk to me about that stuff? I feel like I'm a pretty reasonable individual. And he said that people believed that I was on the board. So they didn't wanna, they didn't wanna poke the bear essentially. And so now I feel like not only did leaving the board hit me emotionally, apparently it was acting as some sort of a ground cover from inter office politics. So I'm a little bit worried about what's about to come down the pipe and hopefully I can meet it with grace and passion, <laughs> understanding. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. It was just an unfortunate emotional state this week, but but I'm, I'm feeling better already. Even now, just talking about it.
2: Well, that's good. Yeah. I mean, I can totally see how that would, be a situation loaded with emotion
1: oh yeah
2: like, yeah you you said you've been on it for a long time i mean since the beginning really okay yeah. so like roughly 10 years yeah then yeah like that anything that you did for 10 years if you especially if you're asked to let it go instead of if you volunteer to do it you yeah, know that's that's going to be very emotional whether you want to or not it's
0: you know what it is too is like i've always been the co-founder of the company. And I've been on the board, and I was briefly the CTO, and then I'm a now I'm a principal engineer, and it, it it just feels like over the years there's been less and less stuff that has set me apart from any other face in the company, and not to be like too ego driven here, but there is an emotional residue, let's call it, from being on I don't want to call it a pedestal, but being like someone of some importance to now. I really, I really do feel like I'm just one of the engineers, and because the company has had a lot of churn, I, I feel like there's probably a lot of people in this company who don't even know my history here, and that's uh, you know that hurts a little bit. Uh, not in like a, not in a painful way, but in like a, I don't know, I don't know what I'm trying to say.
2: I feel like I can relate to this. The way that you're describing it, I feel like I had very similar emotions when I made the choice to stop focusing my attention on CFML and started focusing as the community that I choose to belong to and that I, you know, try to (laughs) focus my learning on as like JavaScript is sort of my, my chosen family. And not that I'm not doing CFML anymore, it's just that now I do it begrudgingly. (laughs) But, you know, when I made that choice, I didn't expect it, but it turned out to be true that I went from being, I'm Not trying to toot my own horn here, but this is just kind of how it felt. I I went from being a big fish in a small pond to a plankton's, you know, like some, some crust on the foot of a plankton in, in a much, 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 much larger pond. Right.
0: I know exactly what you
2: mean. Oh yeah. And yeah, so it was a, I want to say it was a rude awakening, but it wasn't, it wasn't that bad. It's just, I think it was like you were saying, it's a, it's a hit to the ego. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This week I got a text from a coworker that I worked with at my previous job. And it was just, she texted me and it's a picture of some code. And it was a comment that I had put in the code base about something and just Mm -hmm. kind of explaining it. And she's like, you will forever live in our code, like in our source code. (laughs) And I was like, oh, you know, it's like, it's nice to feel like you had some value and that people realize what you did mattered there, even though you're not there anymore. So it was super sweet. That is nice. Yeah.
2: Does that make coding like a superpower? Like, you know, the average person, you know, you die. And then, you know, within, let's just say like three generations, you're, you're forgotten. You're gone. Yeah. (laughs) Right. You're gone. The code you wrote, especially the bad code you wrote, is probably going to live on for like at least twice as long, if not like four times as long.
1: It, yeah. So actually, that's what I responded back with. I was like, it's funny. I it was like, I questioned the code I wrote last week. So I wonder what I would think if I looked at what you sent me that I wrote five years ago. Right. And she's like, yeah, she's like, it's not often that I look at my old code and I turn around and high five myself for what I did. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, same. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, groovy. Not, not a bad showing of triumphs and fails today.
1: No. No, I think we did great. Yeah. <laughs> All
2: right, so let's get into our potluck here. It's going to be Unpopular Opinions Edition. I'll go first. This is not a fully formed opinion, but I'm just going to say it anyway because it will definitely be unpopular. So, you know, I'm still figuring it out. But I think it's possible that requiring password change, like a password reset, or rotating like API keys on a short recurring schedule is entirely wasted time and, and effort. Like it's just dumb. It, Why? And that, I mean, I so I say that, I guess, for me, with the caveat that it, it's dumb as long as you have a, a good security posture otherwise, right? Like your passwords are actually strong, you are doing the things that you're supposed to be doing to prevent security intrusions, you have, you know, a web application firewall, and you're doing all all the best practices to, you know, prevent SQL injection, and, and XSS, and all this other stuff that like, could give people an avenue into your stuff, you're doing penetration testing from actual professional penetration testers, like, if you're doing those things, then 99% of the the mental and physical effort of changing your password every three months or whatever it is and rotating your API keys, even if it's like only once a year, it's still, you know, it's going to take you 10, 15 minutes to do that. And 99% of that effort is just being frustrated that you have to do this again, right? Like it's not actually getting you anything. And, you know, oh, another part of that good security posture, I would say is, Event-based key rotations are not included in this, right? So if somebody leaves the company and you and they had access to keys, now you have to rotate those keys. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about time-based mm. key rotations. So I think it's dumb.
0: <laughs> I, I think I tend to agree with you on this. It, it's funny because when people talk about things like encryption strength and password strength, and they talk about you know, like the number of operations modern computing can do, they're like, oh, you, someone could oh. undo this hash. In you know fifteen mm-hmm. bajillion teraflops an hour, and and to your point, I'm like, yeah, but you can't make that many requests to my application without being blocked. Period. <laughs> like you know, Cloudflare is going to block you for a DDoS attack, or our application logic is going to say, well, you failed to enter the right password ten times, so we're just going to block all your requests going forward. It, like you'd, in order for some of the brute force stuff to make sense. You'd either have to have a, a really severe security vulnerability to begin with, or someone would have to have access to your raw database. And like, I mean, at that point, you're kind of hosed anyway. Uh, it just seems so. So I agree that that some of these things seem hypothetically important, but not necessarily practically important. It, it's like, I remember one time I was reading an article where this guy was railing against the use of uh, JWTs, JOTs. For mm-hmm. session storage, the, the argument, I forget what the argument was as pro job. Was, <laughs> was like, Someone was like, Oh, well, it's, it's more secure than a cookie. And the guy was like, Yeah, but for example, if you can, if, if someone can do a, a persisted cross site security r- issue and they can inject code into your application, like it doesn't matter how you're storing your, your session tokens, like you're already hosed. Whether or not it's in a cookie or a jot, if someone can start making requests to your application on behalf of another user, the storage mechanism doesn't makes it, doesn't matter at that point.
2: Anyway, sorry. That's what so, I call it being pwned. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, security.
2: All right. Well, that's mine. Somebody else can go.
0: I, I'm just going to say that I love relational databases. I grew up on relational databases. It is by far the vast share of my experience. Relational databases will just be my default selection going forward until I have a reason to not use a relational database. And that's not to Amen. say that I don't like some of the other databases. I'm a big fan of Redis. Redis is pretty cool but it's it's like peripheral stuff to the application. It's not the thing I would use. Mongo I've dabbled with a little bit at work and it's just not, doesn't spark joy for me. And I find relational databases very easy to work with. I love writing SQL. I, I don't I don't connect at all with people who think that SQL is like a funky, clunky language. It to me, writing ands and ors seems so much more natural than doing like dollar sign and and passing in arrays of conditions that or together for document databases. So I just I'm so pro relational databases.
1: Yeah, I get it. I feel like a lot of what I develop is just how I'm using the data, right? So I'm constantly like with what I'm developing. I'm like, okay how is this all related? Like, what am I using with it? And maybe you could do that with like a document database, but I'm like with relational database, I can just go, Hey, this is tied to this and this is how it's tied to it. And I know exactly how to get there. And it reads like English to me and I don't have any questions about it. And I don't have to worry about states of anything. Like I know exactly what it is at all times. So I feel like when I'm writing a function, it's just about taking data and putting it on a screen, saving the data and then displaying it back. That's what our applications do. So
2: Ben, I wonder who you surround yourself with. So my <laughs> my gut reaction here was I, I think that the only thing unpopular about this opinion is that you think that it's an unpopular opinion. Because <laughs> like
1: I think it's unpopular too. I, I think yeah. Maybe it well, depends
0: on the circles.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, and that's what I'm getting at is, you know, like I I'm sure that relational databases are unpopular in certain circles. I I think we've kind of touched on this before about like, you know, certain people, maybe people newer to the industry, you know, they they start by following some guide, some tutorial on learning programming and the first thing that they are introduced to is Mongo or something. And so that's that's what they cut their teeth on and that's what is familiar to them. And so the idea then for them of SQL and relational databases becomes weird and and other, but I think that it, it, the circles that I run in, the the articles that I read, uh, you know, that sort of thing, the non-relational databases, document databases, and that sort of thing, seem to be other to me.
0: Mm. All right, that's I, fair. I, you
2: know, and it it could also be a case of like everything that needs to be said about relational databases has been said. Not that mm. not that we need to stop talking about them, but like. We've kind of covered all of that ground, and so it's mostly people rediscovering things or, or you know, solving different problems with the same techniques that gets discussed versus uh, you know, these newer technologies, document databases and things that are more fertile ground for explaining things that people don't already understand. And so that's why maybe they get discussed more.
0: That could be. That could certainly be. It could also be that when people are pro-relational databases, it doesn't register in my brain. But when people are yeah. like, well, actually, MongoDB allows you to scale to 15 simultaneous nodes. I'm like, hold on, bro. And like it sticks out in my head. I, I also, it, it seems to me like a lot of the document databases or let's the NoSQL databases solve problems that I will likely never run into in terms of scaling. So I, I'm, I'm sure that there are reasons to use them that are very persuasive in certain contexts, but those are not the default contexts for anything that I've ever worked on.
1: Okay, I'm going to go with one. So it's not really super techie, but it's one that I've seen in the past. So you bring executives in to manage the company or run this company, but they have no idea of what like the actual technology is that we're using. right? So maybe you know the industry, but you don't actually understand software. Like Our company is a software company. Our company like does nothing but software. If you don't understand code, if you don't understand what it takes to deliver a product based off of engineering side, I don't understand how you can do your job. <laughs> so I struggle with that because People make decisions based off of we think it looks like this. But in reality, when you're on our side of the house, it's completely different. And I don't know. I don't know if it's actually like an unpopular thing. But I'm just like, I feel like executives should, if you're running a software company, You should have started in code. You should know what code is. You should be able to read it. You should have an understanding of what engineering actually is and what it takes in order to run a software company. So it's a silly one, but it's one I'm kind of, you know.
0: No, I think I.
1: I, I, It feels close to home. I
0: tend to agree. (laughs) It's funny. So in the early days of Envision, Clark, who was the CEO was formerly an engineer not at envision but at previous things he, he was a cold fusion developer and uh, in the early days it actually caused a lot of contention because someone would talk about a feature that we want to build and they'd say oh it'll take three weeks to build this and he would say isn't it just a database query though like what is yeah. actually making that so complex and we'd always be like oh dude you're oversimplifying it there's so many more moving mm-hmm. parts than you realize but I think there was actually a very healthy aspect to that, that he could, to some extent, you know, with varying degrees of accuracy, call BS on on people's estimations. Because even in his oversimplified view of how the application worked, he understood enough from a technical standpoint to be like, cut the crap. Like, it's actually not as complicated as you think it is. Let's be more reasonable about how we want to approach it. And I think there's when a, when a manager can temper the the sort of engineer's penchant for over-architecting, I think that can be a really healthy relationship.
1: Absolutely. It stops things up front. So maybe they are like over-architecting something and you're kind of like, hey, this is can be much simpler. Let's think about it again. Or like even having the boss say, hey, isn't this just a database query? And you're like, hey actually, no, it's not just that. Let's have the conversation. That's healthy too. Mm -hmm. Like both sides of it are good. But when you have someone who has no idea, you're kind of just having to bat at what you can and hope you hit the ball somewhere and (laughs) make them happy. So.
2: Okay. You got another one, Ben?
0: Yes. I will go with, I think people overthink the user experience of forms. There's A lot of hand-wringing that I see happens around the richness of reporting errors and making form interactions very compelling. And as a user myself of many, many forms, I feel like the richness of a form just really doesn't matter that much to me. If I come in...
1: What do you mean? What do you mean by the richness like, of a form? I don't know what that so, means. So
0: it's like the degree of effort you want to put into relaying the state of a form, what's going well, what's not going well. So for example, let's say I have a form with a couple of inputs and I, and I hit submit and one of those inputs isn't valid. I could, for example, just put a banner at the top and say something went wrong, right? That's not a great experience. Or I yeah. could say, hey, yeah. you're... Social security number is supposed to be nine digits. And like, that's definitely better. But then some people might put that error message actually next to the social security form and outline that input in red. And like, at some point, there's a diminishing return on investment. And I think that happens way earlier than people actually think (laughs) it does. Because, you know, if I want to fill out a form, it's going to happen. Like I, I'm gonna make it happen and, and the like where you report your error messages and whether or not you outline your inputs in red and like whether or not you fade in a message as opposed to just refreshing the page, like I, I just I don't know. It seems like people over index on trying to make that as rich and compelling as possible.
1: So I've got two things. One, whenever a form loads and I fill out everything and it just says something didn't save, like (laughs) something's not right, I get pretty pissed off. So then I just call someone. I'm like, I'm not (laughs) filling it out again. Like, F you guys, I am going to call you and you're going to fill this thing out for me now because you've wasted my time and I'm mad. But the other thing is that if you expose a lot, then I'm very curious. So I might have paid my county taxes with an AMAX card when they don't take AMAX cards because they popped up a banner that said, we don't accept AMAX cards. And I like right clicked on it and did the debugger and then was like, oh, (laughs) I can just bypass this and put in my card number and it processed the payment because I wanted my Delta points. Okay. My property tax is expensive and I put it on my credit card to get the points. So I get to fly for free. Right. So I was like, after doing that, I realized that when you expose too much in what the errors are, people can bypass <laughs> them too if you don't have everything shared up on the back end, right? So I was like, there has to be a healthy level of just enough information to know that you don't have it quite right, let's fix it, versus it's wrong, you figured it out yourself. So
0: ah, To, to yeah.
2: be a developer and know how to bypass things.
1: <laughs> yeah. Hang well, on like points.
2: Maybe to, to prove your point here, Ben, I I disagree. (laughs) Maybe, you know, I I guess the, a total disagreement would be that like, it's impossible to have a form UI that is too rich, right? Like there's no such thing as too rich. And I I don't agree with that, but I will say that like, I think my bar for what is, what we should be aiming at is probably higher than yours. I like, (laughs) you know, as I'm As I'm tabbing through form fields, I like it when it turns green after I tab out and it's like, okay, cool. I didn't mess that one up. Right. I like it when the error message appears as I tab out and I don't have to wait, like get down to the bottom of a 300 input form and hit submit to find out that, you know, fields 17 and 37 and 49 and, you know, all of these are are messed up. Like help me while I'm at the thing, like while I'm doing it. Well, it's so funny oh. that
0: you mentioned the mm-hmm. the tabbing away because one of the things that drives me <laughs> nuts is I will often Command Tab on the Mac. I don't I don't or Alt Tab. I think on Windows, I will Command Tab mm-hmm. into my One Password application to find my my password for a particular login form, and the act of doing that will oftentimes immediately throw up an error because I I unfocus yep. my password field and they'll be like, no, your password's invalid. I'm like, bro, I didn't even enter my password yet I haven't, I haven't And you know what? it's yet. like the input form has two fields on it. It has email and password. You don't need to tell me that my password form was empty. like I'm gonna hit submit and it's going to tell me my logins not correct. I like you don't so so and I guess I guess so that also going back to the databases for a second because I think there is like a parallel metaphor here, which is that document databases, I think, do legitimately have certain scaling characteristics that, that are harder to achieve in a relational database. And that's fair, but that's also a very specific edge case, or I don't want to call it an edge case. It's a very specific context. Most forms are very small, in my experience, like a handful of fields. And I think people will often try to solve all form interactions the same so that, like you're saying, I don't want to get to the bottom of 50 fields and then realize that the third field was wrong. But most forms don't have 50 fields. And and to apply the same rigor of richness to the email and password login that you do with the, I'm filling out a mortgage you application. Know, a mortgage application. Like yeah, application.
1: yeah. 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 So
0: I don't know. I just, I,
2: <laughs> I, I don't completely disagree with you, but you need to install the, the browser extensions that allow you to just hit a keyboard shortcut and it autofills your password from one password. You don't Yo, have to so, alt, yeah, tab you do out. need that. So
0: I actually just did that because I, I did have that sense that I'm really missing out on some wonderful experience here. And for whatever reason, it only works on a tiny fraction of the forms that I fill out. I don't, I don't, I think I'm doing something wrong. Oh,
2: so, okay. So it sounds like you're creating your one password entries by like manually entering them yeah, in one yeah, password, yeah, like yeah. open up and say, add to thing. well, when you create them by like the first time you log into the website in the browser with the extension installed, it says, do you want to save this to one password? You click yes. Not only does it save the username and password that you submitted, but it saves the URL that you were at too. That's how it recognizes oh, so that maybe my this URLs username and password belong to that form. Yeah,
1: right. And it will also do things like whatever the form field is, right? So it'll be like, oh, I see it's been here versus like an actual name and it saves all that for you. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I do got to get better about that because it is frustrating to uh, command tab to my one password all the time.
1: Yeah. The other thing I see with 1Password sometimes is I'll be on a site, like local working, and I'll get these weird console-like messages or console errors that pop up. And I'm like, what's going on? And it's like 1Password is trying to populate something. And I'm like, how did that even start happening? So I have to like stop it. And I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) Still don't know what's going on with it, but I see them pop up every now and then. And one more thing about your rich UI with forms, right? So. What drives me nuts when I'm on the forum is when tab stops working is like around date pickers and Mm -hmm. things where you hit tab and like a window pops up and it's like, oh, select this other thing. And you select it and you hit tab again and it either like recircles you back into that field or it's just gone. There is no more understanding of where tab was and you have to go click. I get so mad. So everything I write, if I'm ever working with user interface, I make sure when I'm done, you can hit tab and get through every single input with no interact, with like no interference. So, Mm -hmm. yeah.
2: Oh yeah. I did a form design for an event registration flow and there's a lot of uh, optional fields in it, right? So like, you know, this is for universities. So you've got your first name and middle name and last name, but then you might also have a different name than when you were in school, right? A a different uh, last name, right? Like, Traditionally, we would call it a maiden name, but we're moving away from that.
1: Thank in, you. In it's modern culture, it for some of us. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so it's like last name at graduation or something like that. But there's that, there's nickname, there's, you know, a, a bunch of these like hidden fields. And I made it a point to make sure that, you know, not only is the tab order right when the page loads and the, the fields are hidden, but then as you start to expose other fields by clicking on things. And you can tab to the links that that expand those things that every time you make a change like that, that the tab order stays right.
1: Stays in order. It's key. <laughs> yeah. How do you screw that up? Like, <laughs> just go through the page when you're ready to deploy. Make sure you can tab through it. It's so simple.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. The... the- the one that gets me sometimes is when people will take a piece of input and break it up into several input fields, and then they get very aggressive about auto-tabbing you, like auto-moving you to the next field. A lot of times that will happen when you're for like typing in a social security number or you're typing in some sort of a, 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 like a two-factor authentication code. And every now and then, I'll yeah. have to go back and delete something in the middle of that, and it's like it's constantly trying to move me to the next input. I'm like, no, I'm still editing. I'm still editing. Yeah.
2: Yep, that's frustrating.
0: I think it's also worth saying, and maybe this is because I'm an engineer and a developer, and I spend my whole day typing or whatnot. But but I do think most forms are filled out correctly the first time. I I, I think we approach error handling in a form like it's the default experience for users, and I I have to believe that it's 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 like a small number of interactions with forms actually lead to errors if your form is sensical i mean you can create a nonsensical form where people make mistakes because your your design is just terrible but like
1: oh, i wish tim were here right, right. my favorite yeah my favorite one is the credit <laughs> yes. card one like a credit card form <laughs> it should just be standard that you do name yes. put in yeah, your that's name true.
0: that's true put in your
1: card number Put in the expiration date, put in your CVV. When you flip those things, guess what goes in that very first form? I put in my card number every time. And the second form says, oh, we can't have like alpha like characters in here, only numeric. And then I look at it and I'm like, well, why did you ask me for my card number first? Like you idiot. Everybody does first name, <laughs> then card number. It's just standard. Oh,
0: yo, sorry. Yeah. So on that note, I feel like sometimes I want to take almost like a a moral objection stance. I mean, that's not the right phrasing. But, but so, so if you can imagine a sign-up form for, for an application and you have to enter your name, your email address, and a password. And then someone comes along and says, hey, actually we get like half a percent more conversions if we do email first and then name and then password. And I want to be like, I don't care. I don't care. The name should yeah. go first. No one's putting email, then yeah. name. That's way unnatural. It doesn't, it's no. like, I, I don't care what your statistics say. Your, your, your compass is wrong.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Hang on. Hang on. While we're talking about form field order, here's a down popular opinion. Country should come first in address <laughs> country and then zip code. You go
1: actually, that um, makes sense. broadest,
2: broadest to least broad. Mm-hmm. Right. So like your, your street yeah. address should be the last field. Because, or it depends on whether or not you include the name in that. But for example, we have a a form where we validate that the zip code matches the country that you've chosen,
0: Mm.
2: right? So if you, and and this is a form that does some feedback as you type, right? So you enter your zip code and it's like, okay, this looks valid. And then if the, 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 the traditional thinking is country is last. So your zip code is before that. And then, so you've entered your, you know, Antarctica zip code, whatever that happens to be, which might not be the same as the the default country. And then then you go and you change the country and that changes the validation rules for the zip code. Like, but and that's the thing is like, I, I think all of the developers that I talked to about this completely agree, but the general public is not ready for it. We tried that just like, okay, here's our... Here's our registration form. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Here's our registration form, and it, and it and it's the right way. It's like you know, it's like a, a date, right? The only the only way to the, the proper way to format a date is year, month, day. Period. There's no, no question. I'm I will not be taking questions on this <laughs> sub, subject. Um, <laughs> right. So it's similar with addresses, right? It, it should be like you know, country, zip code, state, city whatever.
1: The phone ahead, numbers have changed to that. So whenever you go to put your phone number in somewhere, it's like the very first thing you do is select the country so that it gets mm-hmm. the the routing number right. So if you do US, it's like plus one or whatever yeah. it is for any oh, other country. It. Sorry, I don't that's know really that. Phone, phone numbers have moved to that. Addresses have not yet. Mm.
2: Yeah, no, that's a really good point because in, in this exact same form, we have a phone number field and it has the little country drop down before that, yeah. but it's it. What it is is it's the country prefix code, right? Like plus one for the United States, and and we have flags in there, and so like visual flags, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Pictures yeah. pictures of flags, and you're you're absolutely right. And that makes me wonder: could we just put something very similar, like no no plus one for the United States, but just like the flag, A flag, and, and the country name or something like it. that
1: yeah. before the zip code, right? Mm-hmm. Hmm. I would select it.
2: Anyway, what I was gonna say was like we we tried to to kind of push this viewpoint on the world in our forums, and immediately when we showed it to <laughs> our customers before they even showed it to their constituents, they were like, "Yeah, we're gonna need you to change this. Around. <laughs> this is not gonna <laughs> not gonna fly."
0: I'll I, I tell you, I as a consumer, I have definitely been. On an e-commerce style website where they want you to put in the zip code so they can immediately give you estimates on, on shipping costs.
1: Shipping. Yeah. And I, yeah.
0: and I, and I still, I still would rather have the zip code at the end. I don't know. And it's, and I, and I have no logical explanation for that. I think it's just 40 years of, of doing it one way. It's hard to switch okay, yeah. in, in the same way that I want my name That's what makes to makes it an unpopular an opinion. Yeah.
1: No, see, for me, I am the person that would like to see it all flipped. I'm kind of with Adam. Like, start me with a country. Let me give you a zip because then I know when I start typing in my street name, it's going to be such a smaller like result set because it's going to be based off of the city where I live at, right? It's not going to be based off of every single street that starts with a letter N that could possibly like, be a match to it. And things are going to be more efficient.
0: I'm always suspicious when I enter a shipping address. And I'll be like, it's one, two, three, Smith Court. And I'm spelling court as CT. And then you go to uh, submit it and they're like, you use this, but we have this on file. And it's court spelled out as Mm C-O-U-R-T. And I I just always default to whatever they chose because I just assume that whatever they had is going to get my product here faster and with less error. But there is something very unsettling about that. That like, why doesn't every site have to do that? Like, why are you doing that? Is your delivery process much more brittle that you can't understand the address that I've been using for the last twenty years? That I don't know. It's weird. I don't. I don't like it as an that experience. Is
1: interesting. Yeah. No. I get what you're saying, but like from previous software and current software, we do a lot with physical addresses, right? So we do validate against what is in registries, right? So while you may be putting CT, all the registries may be saying court, and it's just an easy way for us to validate without any manual check that says it's actually that. So other than that, I have no idea why. Just send it. If it doesn't go, it gets returned. It's your own fault. <laughs> yeah.
2: All right, what's next? I got one, I'll go. So I, I'll, I'll start with this. I don't think that you should auto deploy every commit to your main branch, which I say that, but I'm also a huge proponent and fan of automation, especially automatic deploys. I just think that instead of deploying every commit, you should deploy every tag instead. And I say that because I think that this is an unpopular opinion because I don't think I've ever seen a guide or a blog post on the idea of automating your deploys based on commits that talks about doing it from tags it, always, yeah. it seems to always be based on a commit
0: and so sorry just, just for so, our listeners context here you're talking about for example something like Netlify where I have it hooked up to a repo and I commit to my main branch and then Netlify is like oh I see you committed to your main branch so I'm now going to deploy that as a static site like that's is that what you're talking about?
1: Oh
2: yeah, I wasn't even thinking about Netlify. I was like thinking about my application it's that just I do like the work lowest, and, and the lowest you know, hanging yeah. fruit yeah, in terms
0: of complexity. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, part of the reason that I think that it should be tags instead of commits is because sometimes, you know, what if you have five pull requests that you need to merge and you just want them all to be merged and yeah. and one deploy and also for the ability to roll back, right? So instead of if you need to roll back, well, which commits were deploys, right? Um, yeah, that's
1: where I would struggle with it, though, because if you're doing a tag and you're saying, like, I have five things that are going out with it, the rollback would then include everything in that five tag. It would. Whereas, yeah. like, right now, what I do is I roll back the single merge, right? It's like, okay, in main, well, it, in main, let's pull so it back.
2: That would be an option, right? If, if you are doing those incremental releases and you're actually doing deploys after only, you know, one merge or whatever, one pull request, it would be functionally identical, except that you would be tagging the releases to to trigger that automation.
0: That every tag would be a deployment or or would the tag have to have like Uh a special prefix or something?
2: No, I mean, that's an interesting question. I guess I'm not a heavy user of tags currently. We're, we're kind of moving in this direction. We're starting to use tags for deployment after having some experience over the last year or so trying to auto deploy every merge to our main branch. I could see a use case where you might want to have a series of tags that don't get auto deployed.
1: Yeah, yeah, I really need to read about this more because I don't understand how you would stop so, it, right?
2: Uh, well, so there's like... Carol, the, thought, the thing you brought up that I want to make sure doesn't get lost here is, you know, something break, you do a release, something's broken, you need to fix that, right? You have a couple of different options. You could fix the bug and do uh, a new release with that, right? Yeah. And so that's not a rollback at all. That's just, you know, another like a version number. Mix, yeah. Or you can roll that entire tag back. I guess the, the thing is, it, it, it very much depends on the way that you do your releases, right? So if you are if your team strategy is to pile up 10 things that all need to be, you know, that all get merged on the same day and then you do a release halfway through the day or whatever, then yes, if you did need to roll back, then all 10 of those things would go Every back together. Yeah. Or, I mean, alternatively, if this is where it gets tricky because if you, and we get into the particulars I mean, of the tech, but if you revert a commit that creates a new commit that undoes the previous commit, and I don't think off the top of my head, with Git that you can do like a undo of your revert. I guess you can revert the revert. You can
1: revert the revert. Yeah. Yeah. You can revert your revert. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But now, now we're getting into dangerous like meta level stuff here.
1: I don't like Um, doing that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So yeah, like there's, there's pros and cons I think, but I think if you are, if you are considering doing deploys for every commit, I think tagging would be better because it's more explicit. I'm in favor of explicit.
1: Yeah. I need to see it on paper. Like this is one of those things I need to see some like lines and some dots and some understanding of like where things are going and where they exist and how they come back out before I say yes or no to either. Because I'm so used to just doing the work, getting it ready, having my branch out there. It merges into main and then it deploys, right? Like that's, that's the point. And that's when I know my database has been deployed as well. And I have rollbacks for both the database and for what would happen if code fails right so the thought of a tag needing to roll back like scares me because we would have possibly a ton of database rollbacks that would need to go with it but in reality maybe only one of those things needs to come out so why would I want to roll back my database to that point
0: at work at least our our database and our code sort of evolves independently and, and what I mean by that is oftentimes, we have to change the database before we change the code in order to get it ready.
1: I think that's kind of normal, yeah. right? Like we deploy database first. So, yeah.
0: and, I, and I say that only to say that when I think about rolling back code, I'm often not thinking about the database only because the database is hopefully a little bit backwards compatible just because it already had to have been updated before the code went out. Yep. Sometimes you get in a really tough situation where you deploy something and it starts writing new data in a new way. And then <laughs> yeah. you, like you can yeah. roll back the code, but the data is already there. And now you've sort of lost yeah. it, essentially.
1: And see, I guess I'm thinking more like when conversions happen, like when something is changing. So we're changing you know, some customer to a new form. And now what they had before is being converted to a new form. So we're rolling out the code for it. And then we're also converting... What the old was to a new form. So if it fails, we have to roll back the what it is now to what it was before.
2: Yeah, I mean, this like I was saying, there's there's a probably a hundred different variables at play here, and one of those is what does a rollback mean to you, right? So if, if the rollback means our remote desktop into the server and say check out this commit hash instead to to just point your head at the at the different place at a different commit, that's very that's different too, right? So and to your point, or, or perhaps against your point, if you're deploying ten things at once and the problem is in number five out of ten, then everything that got deployed got merged after the problem one, you're you have to roll back using that strategy too. Yeah. You know? Agree. Yeah, so, I could
1: see that. Yeah, we look at how things are related usually. So we're like, oh, numbers six through 10 had absolutely no impact on the thing that's failing. So it's safe to roll back. But then that just becomes an engineer and some leadership person saying, yes, we're good with just this one thing being pulled back. Or sometimes, you know, there's always a dirty way to do it. <laughs> and, you know, you just change the server and let it sit there a minute and you fix it and push it back up. But yeah. Yeah.
2: We, we have that ability right now and, and we're working toward not having that ability, which is a little bit scary. Yeah, like
1: it,
2: it absolutely is. Yeah, yeah. We yep. currently can remote desktop into the server and like just change something <laughs> in production, and it, it's now it's an uncommitted yep. change on the production server, which is very useful in in certain events. And you're like, it only happens in production. How the heck am I going to test this? And exactly you know, what's what's going on? But it's also the, of the losing, bane of my existence. Scary. Yeah. Yeah. I have a confession that when
0: I do a git revert. I know I have to do a dash M1 in order to make it work, but I don't know what that means. It has something to do with like the branches or something and which you're reverting to. I I don't know. I don't understand how branches work at that low level. I just know that when I revert, I got to do dash M1 and magic happens and then my revert works.
2: Well, so here's my confession on the back of your confession. I haven't done a Git revert since probably the year that I learned Git <laughs> forever ago. You know, if I have a problem, I just fix the problem. Yeah, Like yeah. I, I don't need to revert.
0: We call that at, at work, at least we call that rolling forward. I don't know if that's a, a common term. Yeah. That's
1: common. Yeah, that's common. Yeah. You roll forward with it. I will say that I love source tree. So, I tend to do everything I can in an interface. So, I right click on lots of things and say, Can I do this <laughs> in an interface with no command? Because if so, I feel way safer. Makes sense. So, I've got time for one Let's more? Do it. Sure. Alright, I'm going to go with duplication. So I feel like it's definitely unpopular opinion that, you know, it's okay to duplicate your code, right? Like, I feel like I hear constantly that duplication is disaster, and that you should definitely follow the dry methodology, which is don't repeat yourself. However, we speak in English and we think in, or we speak in whatever we speak in, but we think logically, right? We think in steps. And sometimes what you're writing, doesn't always make sense to not be duplicated. And you find yourself in a spot where you do have to duplicate it because otherwise it doesn't make sense to you. And if you can't understand your code, then what's the point of writing code? Like, I need to be able to read it. I need to understand what it's doing. And sometimes I have to duplicate it. Sometimes I have to make such a minor tweak to it that it makes sense to just double the query add the change, let everyone else keep pulling it with this identifier that they were using. And I don't need that identifier rather than trying to figure out how to change this query to never use this identifier in this one-off case. So I don't feel like duplication is disaster. I try to avoid it. I try my best, but sometimes I just, I have to duplicate the process and I have to duplicate the functionality. And I'm not sad about that. I
2: think you're right that, that, that was the attitude for a really long time. That duplication was like evil and should be avoided yeah. at all costs. I think people are kind of coming around on that. So there's, uh, I I have heard, I don't recall what it stands for, but I have heard that somebody has like a, an alternative, you know, acronym there's dry, don't repeat yourself. Somebody created wet, which, oh, it's write everything twice, yeah. right? Don't, don't ah. abstract it away until right. you've written it twice. And then, and then, okay, then abstract it away when you need it a third exactly. time or something. Yeah. And then I think the one that I like the most is, aha, uh-huh, avoid hasty abstractions, <laughs> right?
1: Oh, wait, explain it.
2: So that one's from Kent C. Dodds. He has a blog post on it. So if you, if you Google, uh, Dodds, avoid hasty abstractions, I'm sure you'll find it. Well, I'll put a link in the show notes, but, um, basically don't write an abstraction. Don't like it. If you're. I guess the the thing with dry and and wet is that uh, if you're reusing functionality, it should be a method or something that you can call and and reuse it that way instead of duplicating the code. The avoid hasty abstraction is basically just make sure that you fully understand the problem before you write the abstraction. And, you know, I, I, I think that the argument that he makes is like, you know, you end up with two or three duplicates of the code so that you can fully understand the ways that it's going to vary. You know, I know when we did clean code, our book book club episodes talked about how like methods should have ideally like zero arguments or one argument and like Boolean, like true or false arguments to a a function are, are kind of considered evil because like a function should only ever do one thing and do it one way. So it's, it's so funny because that's like, it's such a, anti-pattern. is such a recognizable thing that I think we've all done a million times because there's not an obvious better way to do it. I'm absolutely sure that there are better ways to do it, but I think that it takes a a slightly higher level of thinking to figure that out and to be able to recognize what's going on when you're reading that code. And I think that's probably where the, where things break down is trying to, read somebody else's code that was clever enough to avoid that Boolean argument, you know, by passing in another function or, you know, that kind of stuff. But yeah, I'm, I'm rambling. Sorry.
0: (laughs) Well, I will, I will double and triple down on your enjoyment of duplication because at work, (laughs) I, so I use a technique, I call it a partial. That's, kind of my own little nomenclature. But essentially at work, what I have taken to doing is I separate out two concepts. On On one side, I have my CRUD style. I'm going to mutate the system and all of those operations kind of flow through a a co-located set of queries and functions. And then I have, on the other hand, I have to render this page. It has some rando data on it And I'm going to build separate queries to the same database and the same tables, but it's going to be very specifically tailored for this particular view. So I might have a a user, if I'm going to edit a user, for example, I'm going to go through a very specific user-oriented service. But if I want to say, for example, list out the top 10 most active users this month, that's going to be a separate specialized query that also goes to the user table. And does you know select ID and name and email from user, but it's going to have nothing to do with that other set of queries. And I might have 10, 15, 20 views that all have their own queries that look very much like that query, except maybe they join to different tables or they only pull back a subset of columns, or maybe they do a little bit of string concatenation or some grouping and, and aggregation. And definitely some people at work have pushed back against that and be like, why do you have a? Why are you selecting from this table and this view? And you're selecting from the same table in a different view. And I'm like, they're two different views. Like the sequel looks yeah. the same to you, but it is not the same because they have different masters. And so I'm, I'm, when it comes to sequel, especially, I'm freaking duplicating all day long and I'm loving it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't sound like you're doing full 100% duplication, right? Like yours are slightly tweaked different for what the use case yeah, is.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah. Same here. Yeah. I get it.
0: That's that I think is the the hardest thing to get over when it comes to dry and do not repeat yourself is that things that look the same are not necessarily the same thing. They just happen to have a lot of yeah. the same words, but they change for different reasons. And and, and that ultimately, I think, is, is the pivotal point, is when things change for different reasons, they're different things, even if they look exactly the same.
1: They're not the same anymore. Yeah, I literally just went through this at work. Like, I'm wrapping it up right now. We had a story come in that was like, oh, just modify this page rename it to this when it's these certain forms and then we're going to do this whole I talked about it previously a little bit about this whole like how we match on different IDs and stuff and ultimately while it looked like hey it's going to be pretty much just some minor modifications the process wasn't written to handle this new way so it's no longer the same process it's pretty much two different processes for how you do it and it has to be handled that way even though there is some duplication that kind of look sort of the same. It's not working the same at all. Like one expects there to be the one-to-one relationship. The other says, I'm going to have a bunch of records come through and you're going to have to come find the right one. It's never a one-to-one anymore. So it's they're different even though they kind of look the same. And you just have to write it in my opinion in a way that people can read it and understand how they differ. So I try to do the best I can when I'm naming functions and when I'm I know comments are bad, but I will still throw a comment in there that says like, hey, I know above this we're looking for a loan number and in this one we're looking for a loan number. But here's why we can't use the loan number above. Like this is why they never match. So you understand what the two differences are.
2: I don't think the comments are bad. I think that comments that say what the code is doing are bad. I think comments should say Why? Right, yeah. should explain why 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 are we doing this? Because I think that comments that explain what the coder do is doing are a smell that the code is not well written. Like if if it's variable names or function names or whatever, like yeah, I I definitely
0: yeah I definitely have lots of comments in my code, hundred percent.
2: We know Ben. <laughs> we read your blog. It's more you have the code samples, and it's more comments yeah, yeah. than it is lines of code. But even even in a
0: production application, I do a lot of commenting. Uh, I part of it is like so. I, this I know this is the worst reason to comment, but sometimes I need some light gray text to break up chunks of logic because I mm. can't have too many lines in a row. It, it's like my brain just can't work like that. And sometimes I have to throw in a comment just to be like visual space, break it up.
2: Sure. I, I will say reading code blocks on your blog, they are very readable. Nice. Right. there's, there's a high level of like being able to, to not be overwhelmed by looking at that code block. So got Highest that going compliment. for you. compliment. Thank you. cool well this episode of Working code is brought to you by putting the country field first in your address (laughs) forms and listeners like you if you're enjoying the show and you want to make sure that we can keep putting more of whatever this is out into the universe then you should consider supporting us on patreon our patrons they cover the costs of our recording and editing and buying new microphones and microphones die (laughs) and we couldn't do it every week without them so thank you guys so much for your support special thanks of course to our top patrons monty gavin and sean thank you uh, if you'd like to help us out, you can go over to patreon.com slash workingcodepod. And, and one of the benefits, all of our patrons get our after show, which we're going to go record uh, as soon as we're done with this part. And on, t- on tonight's after show, after more than 10 years of being an Android fanboy, I, I, I bit the bullet. I bought an iPhone. Uh, so I think we should talk about that a little bit.
1: I saw uh, I that that's when I texted say. you, it went blue. I was like, "Whoa!" Uh, that's all
2: I'm going to say. So that's it. Your homework for tonight. Leave us a question for our 100th episode. This is episode 95, so that means in 5 weeks we're doing episode 100. Oh my god. As you are listening to this, if you're if you're a patron 4 weeks and if you're not a patron 3 weeks, we will be recording our 100th episode roughly on October 27th. So time is running out. You can find the link to leave us a question for our AMA. If you didn't know this is your first episode. For our 100th episode, we're going to punish ourselves with spicy hot sauce on chicken wings or something close (laughs) to that and try to do an AMA at the same time. And so you can leave us a question for that. You can find the link to the GitHub repo where we're taking those questions as issues at the top of our website, workingcode.dev. If you'd like to hang out with our community, you can join our discord at workingcode.dev slash discord. That's it. Let's see. I'm, I'm trying to do minimum stuff tonight because I know I go on and on here. Email us at workingcodepod at gmail.com. Send a voice memo to the same place. That's it for us this week. We'll catch you next week. And until then.
1: Even you guys who follow all of the popular opinions, your heart still matters. <laughs> You've been listening to Working Code with your hosts, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you on the next episode of Working Code.